I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to piggyback on the episode from two weeks ago. That one was called Two Ways to Approach Your Startup Idea Like a Pro. This week, we're going to do what 7-Minute Abs did to 8-Minute Abs and do you one better. We've got three more ways to approach your startup like a pro, and here is why. The episode from two weeks ago did really well. Lots of people reached out, lots more people than normal listened, and lots of emails came in asking follow-up questions. There was a bit of buzz, or as much of a buzz a niche podcast about starting businesses while you've got a full-time job can have. Maybe like a low hum, like when something's wrong with your fridge. Anyway, most of these emails asked for a deep dive on systems thinking, specifically on the processes entrepreneurs should systematize and the tools to do it. I love the idea, but it's going to take some work on my end to flesh it all out. And it's probably better as a written post anyway, so it can be referenced and you can have links and all of that. I'll get it out soon-ish, so if that's of interest to you and you aren't already on the newsletter, head to gettacklebox.com and sign up when you're accosted by the pop-up. A handful of other emails asked for the other things pros do that amateurs don't. The low-hanging fruit, either mentally or tactically. The counterintuitive stuff someone who hadn't ever started a business before would likely miss. That sounded like a wonderful Sunday to me. So I spent 12 hours looking through old notes and founders and deep diving on what exactly separated the best founders we've worked with. I came up for air on the other side with three favorites, and that is what we're going to talk through today. Foundational stuff, mindset stuff, tactical, mental, maybe a touch of emotional. There is also a Gin Blossom song. It's going to make sense later, kinda. The goal is to make the most of the opportunity you've got with your idea. The stuff today is going to help with that. But first, an email that warmed my heart and will hopefully light a fire under your butt from someone who listened to that episode two weeks ago and put it into action. Here it is. Hey, love the pod. Editor's note, I could have cut that, but you know how much I love flattery. I'm working on an idea that's going to help support child therapists. There is a massive child therapist shortage, which is obviously not good. I'm not a child therapist myself, but I work in an adjacent space and have seen the problem and the toll it takes firsthand. I have some ideas on how it might work. I think maybe a marketplace where a therapist with availability in a different school district could take overflow appointments from a therapist that was overbooked or something, but I know I need to speak with way more therapists first. I'd plan time to write and send cold emails to ask people to chat, but after sending 10 and getting no replies, I kind of lost steam. It felt like I was screaming into the void. Then I heard the episode and I thought, maybe I can automate this. So I hired someone off of Fiverr to find 1,000 email addresses for child therapists at high schools in the surrounding states and put them all into an Excel doc for me. Then I had a different freelancer off Fiverr set up a cold email drip campaign where the therapists each got two emails, one asking for a call, the second asking for a call again, but with a three-question survey attached in case they didn't have time to get on the phone. I set up a quick landing page describing the problem I was solving, a calendly for people to reach out and schedule time with me through, and three different versions of the first email to test to see which resonated most. The whole thing cost under 200 bucks, and I've done 10 calls now, and I have 35 more scheduled. I've learned more in the past week from these calls than I had in the previous six months. 
I have a dashboard where I watch people open emails and fill out surveys and schedule time. Systems are awesome. It feels like I have a team. This is so cool. Woo boy, does it feel good to get that email. I always think of system thinking as binary. Most people don't know it's an option, but once they do, the light switches on. There's opportunity for systems everywhere that repetitive tasks or tasks with no potential differentiation or uncomfortable tasks exist. If I had one piece of advice for someone who wants to be a systems thinker but isn't yet, it'd be to pick something with zero stakes and build a system for it this week. Use Zapier to create a chore list that sends an email to you and your roommate on Sundays. Create a zap that sends you an email each morning to remind you to bring an umbrella if there's over a 10% chance of rain that day. Peruse Fiverr and hire someone to scrape the internet for something or compile something or send something to you. Fluency in the tools that build the system is critical. If you've never used them, there's no way you're going to see the potential. The barrier for systems thinking is always comfort. You've probably never done anything like this before, and it's odd to prioritize time over money. But once you do it, you realize that's the game. Last week was about using systems thinking and becoming fluent in the tools that will facilitate it so that you can focus on the things that will truly differentiate you. This week is about those differentiators. Three ways to lean into them, to get the most out of them, to identify them. And we'll dig in with a little help from Frank Sinatra, a GMAT course, and a comedian who drives an Uber. And we'll do it after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. Live in reality and choose where you compete. Do you know what Frank Sinatra's most popular and fastest growing song on Spotify is? Maybe it's my way, that's life. Nope, it's let it snow. Also in his top five songs are Jingle Bells and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Are those great songs, Frank Sinatra originals, the things we think about when we think about him? Of course not, they're all covers. So why are they his most popular songs? Because they have jobs. During the holidays, people play Christmas music. Every year, with no exception, the conditions exist for them to choose Christmas music from November through the end of the year. And while it seems like there are tons of options for holiday music, there really aren't. There are fewer than 10,000 holiday songs listed on Spotify. For reference, there are 80 million total songs. People hire Frank Sinatra's holiday music to do a specific job, and they do that year after year. Humans tend to create infrastructure and stick to that infrastructure. Most of the time, people do the same thing this week as they did last week. They listen to holiday music each year, which means that the Christmas songs Frank Sinatra writes get played over and over and over and will eventually tower over all the rest of his music in terms of play count. There are no other hard and fast scenarios where you must play a Frank Sinatra song 15 times in 30 days. So the Christmas songs will eventually dominate the catalog. So what's this got to do with our professional founders? Two big things. First, they understand that they cannot change people, ever. People will do today what they did yesterday, and no amount of cajoling or marketing or data will change that. In fact, it often hurts. 
If Frank Sinatra's grandson came out next year and spent a ton of money to create ad campaigns to get people to play New York, New York during the holidays instead of Let It Snow because it's objectively a way better song and a better tribute to his late grandfather, it would make absolutely no difference. And you instinctively know how silly that sounds. But entrepreneurs do the Frank Sinatra grandson pitch all the time. They say, hey, I know you currently use Excel to track all your potential hires, but you should really use this other thing, this dashboard that I created. And instead of hiring aggressively only when you need someone a couple times a year, you should hire passively at all times so that you fill your funnel. It's better for you. Trust me. Want to buy? Amateurs want their customers to change to fit what's best for the entrepreneur. They build SaaS businesses because they love the idea of getting subscription payments each month. They build dashboards and platforms because they think that'll make it easier for them to raise VC funding. Pros know they're never going to change their first customers. They need to find people that already believe what they believe and are already trying to change. I use this analogy with our startups all the time and it cannot be repeated enough. You will never get your first customer to leave their house to go buy a nice coffee, but you might be able to get someone who's already left their house to go get a nice coffee to get yours instead. Your job as a pro is to be a student of your customer's process and intercept them where it makes sense, to know exactly what they do, what they want, and how they're going about it. If they don't prioritize the problem you're solving, they aren't your first customer. If they do, how are they solving it? How can you work within those confines to help them solve it three to five to seven to 10 times better? They listen to Let It Snow because it's Christmas, and Let It Snow fits in alongside chestnuts and gifts and family, and it's on the Christmas playlist Spotify puts out, and that's the thing they play. What is that infrastructure for your customer, and how can you fit inside it? I mentioned that there were two important things that pros did with existing infrastructure. Here is the second. They take advantage of categories. Let It Snow is a holiday song, so it gets played at holidays and never any other time of year. These categories exist everywhere and your customer has them. Your customer will drop you into a category and assign all the characteristics of that category to you if you don't purposefully choose the category yourself. Here is an example. At some point a few years ago, people started making the case that Die Hard was a Christmas movie. I searched on Google Trends and I can actually tell you exactly when that conversation started in earnest. 2016. Searches in December for Die Hard spiked. And now, every year around the holidays, the movie's popularity explodes, and it's actually doubled every year since 2016. The rest of the year, and before 2016, interest in Die Hard was low and flat. Someone changed the category of the movie Die Hard, from an 80s movie that some people liked and watched nostalgically once in a while for unpredictable reasons, to a Christmas movie people watch every year for predictable reasons. New category, massive increase in revenue same product. If you're selling to a customer, what category will they naturally put you in? How can you actively choose a different category that's more useful for you, a category with better constraints around it? My favorite example is the perfect bars that I eat for breakfast. They're peanut butter and they're delicious and they're refrigerated. They sit next to the yogurt at the grocery store. So I put them in the category of yogurt and fresh produce, healthy, perishable, Except that when you read the label, they aren't perishable and they aren't healthy. They don't even need to be refrigerated. It is just a brilliant choice by the manufacturer to change the category the peanut butter bars are in. 
Instead of being next to a bunch of protein bars where they wouldn't stand out, they're in the fridge next to the yogurt with no other bars in sight. They land in the category of fresh food, and that is how I treat them. Knowing existing infrastructure and categories lets you choose where you want to compete the exact moment that you want to live. That's a choice pros make and amateurs don't. Who won't you help? The value of anti-marketing. Amateurs try to build stuff for everyone. If you listen to this podcast, you already know that and you're actively trying to avoid that mistake. Pros have a secret to make sure they avoid it. They use anti-marketing. When you don't have much of a brand or any social proof, it's hard to build trust in the six seconds of attention you're going to get from customers in your cold emails or social ads or mailers or whatever. Often, the fastest way to build trust is to describe who you aren't for and what you don't do rather than who you are for and what you do. This is hard because we're entrepreneurs. Our instincts are always that we can help everyone. Isn't that the whole point? But anti-marketing, calling out exactly who or what you're against, can usually build a brand faster. During the early days of Tacklebox, our strongest ads by far were the ones that said we were anti-VC. This pained me to say because I knew in the middle and long run, I wasn't going to be completely anti-VC. I really think it has its place. But it was great for and it aligned with the people who were building businesses that didn't want VC early on. So calling them out and saying that the thing that they believed, I believe too, was really effective. If you have something controversial and state it clearly, the people who also believe it will gravitate towards you and you'll create trust. It's the extension to Seth Godin's people like us do things like this. People like us don't do things like this. And it's powerful. A company came through Tacklebox a while back helping people on the GMAT. The guy running it had a system and it worked extraordinarily well. For people who scored a 600 out of 800, he could almost guarantee to get you above a 700. But where it really shined was for people that were already scoring like a 730 or 740 and that hit a wall. The ones who needed an 800 to get into Harvard or Stanford, the best of them all, UNC Chapel Hill. He realized this during the program and pivoted his messaging from, quote, we'll help improve your score by 60 to 150 points with all sorts of details then on his methods and timelines and cost to, quote, we help people who consistently score 730 to 750 get over the hump and finally get that perfect 800 that'll get them into Harvard. Below it, he said, quote, to work with us, you must show proof that you can already score above 720. As soon as he went to that messaging, pre-orders exploded. There was no talk of his method. That didn't matter. The act of choosing who it was for, and much more importantly, who it wasn't for, was the most powerful marketing technique, and the hardest. He said he had to drink three beers before he got the courage to hit go on his ads. That is how you should feel, like you're leaving people out and that you're making a mistake. Maybe the beers are a kombucha or a long run, but this shouldn't feel comfortable. And pros know that's the feeling to chase. And once he sent out this messaging, he got a ton of emails saying things like, quote, I can't score 720 yet, but can I please get into the course? I really want an 800. I really want to go to Harvard. And now it's time to shoehorn in that Gin Blossoms quote I promised. I've been listening to 90s rock radio on Spotify nonstop, and I will tell you what, Hey Jealousy still gets the blood flowing. What a tune. And there's a line in it that is kind of relevant. It goes, quote, if you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down. Choosing helps you narrow in on the value you need to provide. 
The GMAT person no longer had customers expecting to go from a 600 to a 710 or a 550 to a 650. Customers of all types with all different goals and work ethics and base levels of competence. Now, all he has to do is work with the best of the best and get them over the hump. Far fewer expectations, far fewer people to be let down. There's a great quote by Jerry Seinfeld about this. It's one thing to create, he says. It's another to have to choose. What are we going to do and what are we not going to do? This is a gigantic aspect of artistic survival. It's kind of unseen what's picked and what is discarded, but mastering that is how you stay alive. So who won't you help? What is your anti-marketing campaign? Put your ass where your heart is. There's a book by Stephen Pressfield called Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Is, and I didn't think it made sense to create a title from scratch when the absolute perfect one already existed. It's self-explanatory. It's also criminally underused. A good friend of mine lived in Minnesota for years with a roommate who I believe was in pharmaceutical sales or something, but his roommate always wanted to be a comedian. There isn't much of a stand-up scene in Minnesota, but apparently he'd grind it out, doing shows where he could, coming up with a new material, putting stuff online. Then one day, for no real reason, or at least no real reason that I was told, he quit his job and he moved to LA. He took a job as an Uber driver and focused on comedy shows at night. He tried to have a show every night of the week, if not two. During the day, driving his Uber, he would give each guest a half-joking option. Either listen to my stand-up and you don't have to give me a tip, or don't listen to my stand-up, but you better tip me. He practiced bits all day, focused on the rearview mirror, seeing what landed. He'd take that feedback into his shows at night. One day, the person he was driving had a friend who ran one of the bigger comedy clubs in the city. He introduced them. Now, the comedian is a regular at that club. Apparently, he's filming a pilot for a show as well. I'm not saying you should move to LA or New York City or San Francisco. I am saying that the way most people are successful is through serendipity, through increasing the number of potential interactions with people that could potentially help them. If you're building software for nurses, you damn well better be in a hospital. Wherever your people congregate, whether in person or virtual, be there all the time, be known, become part of the fabric. In hindsight, pros always talk about luck. I was lucky to meet this person or be in this room or to be introduced here or there. A huge portion of that luck is having their ass where their heart is. Amateurs try to average their way to success. Sure, the comedy clubs are in LA, but I'm in Minnesota. Maybe I'll go out there every month or two. Most people get 85% of the way there. They create great content. They put up great videos, but they don't take the real step to give it all a chance. Being surrounded by the people that can help you make the leap is a cheat code. If luck plays such a big factor, and it does, optimize for it. Increase your chances. Pros take that seriously. And one 30-second bonus because it's top of mind. I get about 30 to 50 emails a day from PR agents looking to get their client featured on Idea to Startup as a guest. It's infuriating. We almost never have guests, though we'll likely actually have one next week. And the guests I pick are so purposeful, and the guests these PR folks pick are so random. I've been pitched everyone from Paris Hilton, actually, to random mid-level employees at banks to people with new music coming out. Sifting through these each day because I'm worried if I don't or batch filter them or something, I'm going to miss Jeff Bezos is the bane of my existence. Until yesterday. I got an email with the subject line, quote, just gave Idea to Startup five stars and a great review on iTunes. 
And on the inside was a screenshot of the five-star review. Then the PR person went on to pitch their client just like everybody else. But I paid way more attention. I might actually have this person on. She seemed interesting. Pros recognize that they need to create value in the first interaction with anyone that they want to become a client or talk to on the phone or get anything useful from. You can't just take, you have to give first. And pros figure out unique ways to create that value. 49 emails from lazy PR people yesterday. One email from a pro. The end. This stuff is all hard. It's uncomfortable to choose where you'll compete or choose a category or try to create value within someone else's system rather than one of your own. It's hard to move to LA and it's hard to think about how you can create value to a complete stranger in an email. But that's the good news. It means that most people won't do it, but you will because you're a pro. And then you'll figure out how to automate it and systematize it. And then you'll scale those systems and those scaled systems will be your business. And when that business grows and grows, you'll reach back out and we'll go have three beers to celebrate and we'll listen to the gin blossoms and all will be right in the world. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and join the membership. We'll help you start your business right. And if you made it this far, a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to this is always a huge help. Have a great week.